Hey, everybody. Hope you're having a great day today. Today is a first for us. We have a philosopher, like a legitimate PhD philosopher, somebody who's taught on like bioethics and the medical world, uh, ethics involving technology, things like that. He recently went down the uh, UAP extraterrestrial rabbit hole himself, and he came up with some very interesting questions like, could is disclosure even possible? Could we ever have something happen where we would all agree? Would there be proof that we could all agree would be actual proof? And he's done some mappings and some scenarios, and uh, it, it gets real complicated real fast when you think if this action happens, there's a whole bunch of subconsequences. And for each of those, there's so many more potential subconsequences. It's like chess, right? It's like yeah, chess. Yeah, this is chess like is the exactly spider the web of... Like we're all feeling that disclosure is coming or some believe it's here, some believe it never will happen. But what happens after that? What are the ethical implications of this? If there are non-human intelligence, we have craft. So how do we how do we remove our biases and become better thinkers? And, and I think that also breeds more open mindedness and more acceptance. And, you know, if there's ever been a time that this field needs more acceptance and less stone throwing, it's now. Yeah. So we're going to we're going to present a show today that I don't think anybody else has done. Michael is brilliantly. Um, I don't even know the word. He's just he makes sense. He's easy to understand. You can tell there's a lot more there, but he's putting it in a package you can understand. And uh, it may wind up being a two parter because we don't want to get too in depth. But uh, if you're if you're into this type of thing, whether you're a genius savant or somebody brand new to the topic. This is a lesson in how we should think about things and how we should not throw away the inconvenient truth. So I'm super excited. Jay, are you ready? Oh, I'm pumped. Let's do this. All right, brother. We'll roll the music and we'll see everybody back here in 26 seconds. Welcome back to another episode of UAP Studies Podcast. My name is Louis Borges. Joining me as always, my best buddy, Jason Gilmet. It is Louis Gorgeous Borges. You know, Thank the, you, you always Thank forget you. the middle one. Yeah, but uh, Louis, I'm pumped for today. Um, you know, I, I've been looking forward to doing a philosophy look at UAPs and what it implies because it has a huge part to play in this. Uh, like we mentioned before, we, we always have, uh, you know, multiple levels of expertise that is needed to uncover this um, phenomenon and philosophy is as much needed in this as science is so this is our first time having a, a great philosopher on the podcast and yeah. i'll let you do the introduction my man but i'm totally yeah. pumped yeah so today's guest is uh, Michael Glosson. He's a PhD. Uh, he's a former professor, a writer, communicator. Uh, some of his work deals in the areas of like religion, technology, ethics from a, f a philosophical point of view. Um, and he's taught courses on like biomedical ethics, logic and argumentation. And I looked up the definition of argumentation because I must admit I didn't know what it was. And it's brilliant. And the definition is the process of reasoning systematically in support of an idea, action or theory. So it's like healthy thinking on big topics and ways to do that without letting bias interfere or at least assigning bias to where it belongs. But how do you break down something as abstract and perhaps bigger than our brains can even contemplate? So I don't think anyone else has done a show on the podcast world about this specifically. So uh, very ha happy to have Michael Glosson. Welcome to the show, brother. 
Hey guys, thanks for having me. I'm super excited about this. Yeah, we are too. So uh, for those who don't know about you or your past work, maybe tell us a bit about yourself and uh, what got you into uh, this particular genre uh, as far as your studies and your thinking goes. Sure. So I was an academic for most of whatever you can call my career. I only recently left academia. So the only people who really know me are in that world. Uh, and you are sort of blessed if you're not among them, because academia is kind of a hard place. But I, uh, as far as how I got into this, I started studying scientific anomalies out of professional interests. Like one of the things that's interesting to me is philosophical questions that have to do with science. And one of the most interesting of those questions is like, what do scientists do and what do we do with our theories when we come across an observation that just does not have any place in our theories at all? Like just doesn't fit. The parts don't fit, right? And that happens from time to time. Uh, and I started getting interested in modern scientific anomalies, um, but well-documented observations that we just don't have any theoretical language for. And inevitably, that leads to UFOs. I mean, not, not just UFOs, but UFOs is definitely one of the things that kind of crops up. You've got all these observations, they're often uh, well documented visually, or we've got multiple different angles of documentation. We've got instruments and readings and things that, that seem to strongly suggest that there's a there there, but we really have no idea how to fit them into the current theoretical frameworks that we're working with. So that's how I got there. Um, and the first book that I ever read, the first thing that ever like really hooked me was really recent. It was Diana Pusulka's, um American Cosmic. I read that book and then became a crazy person to my friends i think because i just started buying copies and sending it to people like you've got to read this. this is just bizarre it was just the most bizarre thing i'd ever read and uh, as it turns out it led to a um long trail of other equally bizarre things that i've read but uh the, the topic's fascinating so here i am yeah, no, and, and the thing is, like you brought up a good point. It's not only learning about this, but we're building a lexicon, uh, you know, learning what, what this is all about. And we were having to focus at one point. Like, it's so encompassing, this this subject, because it's not only global, but it affects on so many different levels. Yeah. And each one of them have their own philosophical problems to solve. That's why this issue is so big, because I think humans, we've only been focused on ourselves. Now focusing on something else that may be bigger than us, it it, it forces us to outthink the way that we think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, you know, because it forces us to grow. Like, we're not going to find out what's going on unless we start changing. Uh, Louis, you have a saying uh, to the effect, and you're probably correct me uh, on how to say it, but some to the effect that if you do something repeatedly that doesn't work, that's the definition of insanity. Yeah, doing right? the same thing over and over again and somehow expecting a different result. Right. Sure. Yeah. And so I think the best quote for this type of thing with philosophy is it, it's not stranger than you think, it's stranger than you can think. And that's a Dr. Wayne Dyer quote about, yeah. you know, trying to digest something that we may not have the, the biology to physically be able to do, you know, it's. Uh, that's, that's a great point. That's, that's one of the angles that I keep kind of returning to is this question of like, do we even have the concepts necessary to yeah. understand the thing in front of us? Like for a lot of scientific history, we needed to come up, come up with some new concept in order to like assimilated into our worldview, like quantum phenomena. We had no language that let us talk about it. 
Uh, and so we had to invent it. And whether we invented the right language or not is an open question. But I think probably we're, we're going to have to do something similar here. I mean, if there really is a there there, it's probably something so weird that we just don't have the right language for it. And how do we build that language? That's a deeply philosophical question. There's really no other discipline that does that sort of work. Yeah. And if somebody is out there going, well, what does philosophy have to do with, you know, nuts and bolts, UFOs or hardened craft? You know, there's a, a big divide in the world of UFOs where people are like science only or spirit only. There's not a big cross. And even science and religion in general don't seem to get along. So if somebody was to say, you know, what's philosophy got to do with UFOs? What would you say to that? Well, there's a lot of things I'd say. I mean, one of the one of the things that immediately comes to mind is uh, this question of like what standards of proof and evidence ought we to you apply to a, a case when we're reasoning about something that's totally new or that we, we're not familiar with reasoning about, right? Okay. So when we're reasoning about things like um, how protein folding works, we've got a pretty good idea of what we look for to test whether a hypothesis is right. You know, we um, we analyze proteins, we look at how they might grow or what effects they might have on sort of uh, surrounding organi orga organic matter. Uh, and then we, we have a, a fairly good answer. How do you go about reasoning about whether the the instrument has actually detected an object that can fly at Mach 5? We don't know. All you have in front of you is uh, instrument readings and some maybe unconnected eyewitness testimony. And what do those two things have to do with each other? I mean, maybe, maybe nothing, um, but maybe we ought to connect them in in a certain way and like draw a certain conclusion about them. What conclusions we ought to draw from the material that we have in front of us is a philosophical question. I mean, there's just no other discipline that works on that. Another, maybe more tangible angle is ethical questions. Like if we, let's say our governments have detected the presence of some intelligent actor that's got all these really fantastically sophisticated technologies at their disposal, what should they communicate about that to the public? Is that good for the public? What's in the public's best interest? Like one thing that kind of annoys me about current UAP discourse is that I've never heard anybody even sort of experimentally try to make the case that maybe governments ought not to tell us anything. That seems totally plausible to me. It seems like a, an open possibility that just disclosure shouldn't happen if there is anything to disclose. But I've never heard anybody explore the possibility of that argument. And that's one thing that philosophy is really good at, is just exploring lines of reasoning, even if you don't actually hold them, to see if they're any good, to see if they're strong, or if they uh, terminate in some conclusion that's useful to you. Yeah, I, I suppose this is challenging, too, because if you're dealing with, let's say, biomedical ethics, there is such a thing as biomedicine. But how do you deal with ethics on a hotly contested topic? Some people still yes. say the phenomenon doesn't exist. The world is ripe with skeptics. So how do you dive into that when the phenomenon is not even accepted by the majority of people? Right. I just had a conversation with Mick West the other day um, about this very topic. I really admire his work. I think he's a super smart guy and has done a, a lot of great services for the UAP community by telling them which cases and sets of observations are just totally not worth their attention and which are. Um, but he doesn't think there's a there there at all. I mean, I was really surprised by this conversation where you think it's all attributable to like errors of human reasoning, glitches and in instrumentation, um, tricks of perception with, with the way optics work and things like that. 
That seems very implausible to me. I mean, maybe he's right, and I'm stuck in a sort of perceptual ideological bubble at this point. That's really hard to get out of. But the so then the question arises, like, how do you go about talking with a person who doesn't even think there's a there there? Like, what can we agree on that can move this conversation forward? And I worry about that on two levels. One, when it comes to the actual policy level, and people have to like make decisions about what actually to do about these things. How do we get them to reason together? And then I worry on the public level, if there's a growing public discourse about this, it's definitely going to fragment into different camps. And the differences between how those camps reason about what we put in front of them or what the government puts in front of them or whatever, those differences might scale up into like real serious civil unrest or UFO cults or something. So yeah. how do you reasoning is a, is a really practical question here. Yeah. And actually you brought up a good point because I think we live in a time where science is trying to be dismissed as being factual facts are no longer facts it's whatever you feel or imagine is a free-for-all and this is a trap that i always worry about in ufology meaning that i'm worried that i will drink the kool-aid that anything and everything that comes through because of my belief in the system uh, i'm going to accept that as being factual or truth where in fact i should actually be more like mick west in the sense of saying wait a minute, I didn't thoroughly investigate. And the thing is, love him or hate him, uh, Mick West is actually doing scientific experimentations yeah. to prove his point, as opposed to the couch potato who will comment underneath his his you know YouTube channel saying, you're stupid. It's like, you didn't do the work he did. It's the same thing with uh, Stanton Friedman. The guy would foam at the mouth at his critics because his critics were people that just read his book and then commented on their opinions on it. They didn't go out. They didn't do any of the research. They weren't out in the field in the rain or dug in the, you know, they didn't do any of that stuff. They just, this is my opinion. And today, I don't know if you've noticed that, Mike, but it's like, you know, you'll have a panel where you have an expert, you know, in, in biochemistry or something. And some guy who just doesn't believe in it. He has no credentials, but somehow it's equal weight to the guy that spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to educate himself. Uh, just on on that aspect, when it applies to ufology, what are the traps that you think are are sort of laid out uh, right now that we are doing without really knowing about it? Um, our, our sort of focus and determination, especially when it comes down to disclosure, because now disclosure seems to be happening. Uh, what do you think are the trap holes and, and uh, uh, setbacks that we have right now as a culture accepting this? I love that question. And first of all, I totally feel the annoyance at the fact that people who don't know a goddamn thing can just like open their <laughs> mouth just as easily yeah. as people who like know a whole lot. Yeah. And that's always been the case, but our technology has made that so much more of a problem because everybody types into the same little comment box under YouTube. There's no other comment box where you can be like, oh, it's only accessible to experts and we can just listen to those people. So I think people's mouths have always been a problem, but our technology has amplified the problem a lot more. Um, and I don't have any solution to that. Uh, but it's worth noting the locus of the problem is not the mouth, but the the technology mediating it. Um, as far as like what traps or bubbles are set for us, uh, the first way to go about thinking about it is to think about the nature of those bubbles themselves. So in philosophy, we have, the, or in epistemology, the area of philosophy that's concerned with questions about how we believe and what we should believe. There's a concept 
uh, I can't remember what philosopher came up with this, but they called it a blick, B-L-I-K, and it's just a nonsense word, but it means a, um, a pattern of belief that is so circular and self-referential that you can't possibly get out of it. Uh, to give an example, like neur neurotic, um, like paranoia is a kind of blick, right? It's a view of the world where if you think everybody is out to get you and everybody's conspiring against you, there's no evidence that could ever really pull you out on its own because you can always reframe that evidence as, right. <clears throat> uh, oh, that's just somebody trying to, you know, fool me. And, you know, if you, or, or depression, existential depression, people who think that nobody loves them are stuck in an inescapable sort of reasoning hole, or, or it's not inescapable, but you can't just reason your way out of it because anybody who tries to show you love, you can just say, well, you're just lying or, or whatever, you know? So there are patterns of belief like that, that attach to everything, right? So one is uh, that any conclusion you draw about the phenomena that, that are here uh, we we have to ask like what is the what is the cause of all these phenomena? Let's say that we agree the phenomena are things like um, military installations that have detected uh, objects that can fly at Mach five and do ninety degree turns or whatever, and people who uh, have seen objects rising out of the ocean and things like that. Let's say that's that's the the evidence that we all agree is legitimate. Um, you can then reason yourself into a whole by picking one, uh, like, the tastiest possible explanation for it, like, it's extraterrestrials that, that have a base at the bottom of the ocean, or it's a breakaway civilization, or it's our descendants in the future that are coming back to us. Uh, and I think that at this point, you could construe any amount of evidence as support of that theory and never be able to be pulled out of it just by evidence alone, because the current state of the evidence is so kind of poor and vague but as we go ahead in time once evidence gets better and better you will have built such a well-reinforced loop of thinking that it won't matter right nobody will ever be able to pull you out so right now i think the advice i would give regarding that is don't draw any conclusion whatsoever right just sketch out the the space of possible theories that might make sense to you and notice how the evidence points towards any of them that's yeah, you, men you mentioned yeah. the loop of continual sort of rumination and stuck in a, a way of thinking. And that's the problem with proof, quote unquote. Some people, proof might be the fact that the government's even talking about this, right? If yeah. there was no such thing, they'd probably shut it down. For other people, they won't be satisfied until they see a body. And then it will be fake. And depending who the deliverer of that message is, oh, he's in that camp or he's in that camp. So we have this sort of UFO cult mentality if you believe what this person says, you're an idiot. I'm in this side. So even if there was hard proof, you're, you're going to find a reason to justify your own belief that that's fake or you're a whistleblower or you're a government plant. You're just doing bidding for somebody else. You can literally throw a stone at anything to make it fit your way of thinking. Or yeah. if a topic is, you know, too abstract or above your, your head, it's like, oh, this is nonsense and garbage. Is it or is it just you're having a hard time grasping it? It's your perception. And like you mentioned, the people that are eternally depressed, nothing you can say or do will show them anything different. That is their reality that they're creating. And so like all of us are trying to understand just the basics of life. And it gets really screwed up when we start trying to understand the really complex things that we know, you know, literally nothing about. 
uh, and and you go down that rabbit hole and you get this division and you get this polarity, right? So yeah, um, you have some slides that you prepared, correct? I think sure. that might help us yeah. with a particular slide. Sounds so uh, awful, but you got some visual depictions. Yeah, I have some for uh, visual delights for you. Absolutely. Um, so one has to do with the the concept of disclosure. Um, and so let's see if that works. Yeah, that works. So one thing that I've been kind of annoyed with lately and just kind of watching the state of UAP discourse is how often the notion of disclosure comes up. And this is an area where I think that people have thought themselves into sort of a loop or maybe an inescapable bubble. And what I mean is that everybody's looking at stuff like um, David Grush's testimony and saying, how far off until disclosure has happened. And I think everybody's working with kind of a vague notion of what they mean by disclosure. But I, I really want, as a philosopher, this is like one of our fundamental uh, jobs, is I want to clarify that concept. Concept clarification is like kind of the heart of, of analytic philosophy. Well, what do people mean when they talk about disclosure? And in my head, as I've tried to think it through, um, I'm not sure I see any plausible scenario where at the end of the day people will say that was disclosure we are all on the same page we all see it has been shown that blank let's just say aliens are here or whatever then there's a galactic federation whatever like in actual thing that's being disclosed it doesn't matter that much but um I, i'm not sure what could be done to make a disclosure and the reason is that i think people aren't thinking strategically about how communication works right um any possible statement that could uh, sort of initiate disclosure uh, is going to have to be spoken by a particular group or individual. And that group or individual is in a world of other groups and individuals that have their own sort of incentives um, or alliances, interests, and beliefs, right? So we've been thinking about, we almost always think about like disclosure as something that the United States government will come out and do. But we almost never think about what the next step is going to be in that. And that could be a lot of things. So I created this um, this sort of flow chart. And the, the problem is, what I wanted to illustrate is that if you, any initial disclosure scenario you imagine, there's thousands of possible ways that that could go. And some of them may count as disclosure to you, but most of them probably aren't because they just get too fucking hairy and weird. Yeah. Um, and, and there's too much public confusion about it. Um, and I wanted to illustrate that by taking a list of people who might be disclosers and a list of things that they might say that would or would not count as disclosure, and then a list of other people that might respond to them and responses they might make, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is that when I just did 20 of these, 20 of everything, it came out to over 100,000 pages long of the outline, and it crashed my computer every time, well, not my computer, but at least one of my cores every time that I tried to run it. So I had to pare it down to just two instead of 20. Uh, but you can see here in this flow chart, I've just picked 20 random groups that came to my mind. Some of the more interesting ones. So we've got the Pentagon. We've got um, the President of the United States. We've got some whistleblowers. What, if, what about the Pope? What if the Pope is the one who comes out and says something? Or what if it's Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jimmy Thomas, and uh, Q that come out and disclose the information, right? Maybe they actually do have real data, real videos or something. But what are the chances of actually creating like a unified, like, you know, convinced public. I think it's pretty low. Or And then there's others like Kim Jong-un or the um, the director of Israel's space agency, right? 
where if they come out and say something immediately, Iran and North Korea are going to respond in a certain way, and that's going to inevitably create confusion. But let's just go with the president of the United States for now, right? I want to open them and say, okay, there. here's A through J. There's 10 possible disclosure statements that they can make. And they range from things like, uh, let's see if I can, oh yeah. Well, we have bodies, craft, and other tech, or we have some crash tech that we've been trying to reverse engineer, or there's an ET base in the Atlantic Ocean. That's where the ET or the UFOs come from. Um, all the way down to uh, <laughs> the ETs will only say that the moon, Jupiter, and its moons are theirs and to leave them alone. You know, like I'm trying to kind of pull some sci fi um, scenarios out of here. I think one of the ones that I uh, ditched was that uh, we were in contact with ETs and they don't like us, but they're really cool with the cephalopods. Like that's a, a plausible scenario. And I'm not sure that if it were the truth and anybody said, oh, that's what's going on, nobody would believe it, you know? So there's this whole space of like possible truths that just, if they were announced, everybody would be like, bullshit. There's no possible way. Right. So these are just 10. The point is to illustrate that there's thousands of different things they could say as like the initial disclosure statement. Right. And then we just pick one. Um, the ET is the man that we stop war and disarm, for instance. Uh, and then you have a range of other people who might respond to that. Let's see. Uh, let's pick. Um, well, you guys pick one. We'll go MUFON. MUFON. Good choice, Louis. Okay. What does MUFON say? Let's imagine MUFON says that. Um, how do we know this isn't all a hoax or? Uh, the disclosures have actually fallen victim to another country's psyop trolling. So now we have like a kind of a complete path as far as I only went like three steps deep. So in this disclosure scenario, um, the president of the, of the United States via his White House press secretary says that they're, they're extraterrestrials. Um, we're, we're in contact. They demand that we stop all war and disarm. And the, the primary responder that we're considering is, oh, MUFON says that um, that we know that that this tech actually isn't um, isn't ET tech, uh, or um, the the evidence they have isn't actually ETs. It's a psyop um, from another country, and that becomes the main narrative. Is that a disclosure scenario? If there's like a huge portion of the population and the U UFO community who think that like, no, this is really just a, a the U the U.S. has fallen into a trolling scheme from Russia or whoever. Doesn't seem to me like we've achieved disclosure if there's this massive disagreement and like uncertainty about what the narrative is, right? There are others that do seem to uh, end in disclosure. Uh, whereas, like, what if MUFON becomes the main responder that everybody's listening to and they just say the aliens are the closest things we have to real gods, we should treat them with reverence and ask for their guidance? Like, if everybody believes that somehow, that seems like maybe we're all on the same page enough to call it a disclosure scenario, regardless of whether it's actually true or not the point so, being that it's just like the the possible futures are billions of possible webs that we could like ferry out into and almost all of them when they terminate however many steps you want to go most people are going to be like that's not really disclosure as we're imagining it it's not like cohesive enough and clear enough so mike i got a question so you're you're basing um all of this also, let's say you got categories, you got Vladimir Putin, like what if he came out, you got classifications for what he might say, and then classifications of what they might do, depending on what he says, which is brilliant. If you're just listening to the podcast, this chart, 
Um, he'll just pick a name and then in that name, there's categories of things they might say within the things they might say, there's categories it's in depth, like it's trust a spider me, web. it's a spider web. And this is what philosophers, uh, like Mike does. Um, it did go it's down like, rabbit wait, holes. This is not normal for philosophers. This is sort of, um, yeah, this is yeah, but, but it's, you know, really, uh, you're doing something that hasn't, re I haven't seen before, which is looking at, you know, and, and you mentioned this in one of the questions um, that you sent us through email about the philosophy that is needed behind UAP studies. Mm -hmm. And I love that concept. Uh, one question I was going to say is that innately humans, we always look to the leader of the tribe. We used to do that when we were smaller groups, you know, group of 100 people. The leader of the of the the tribe or whatever we look to them if they said something we validate that now we have heroes we don't really have leaders um so you know somebody will only believe in ufos if kim kardashian says it because i'm a huge kim kardashian fan the president lost basically you know all credibility because nobody believes that but based on that are we all holding our breaths for the u.s to come out because they are the dominant leader in the world so we're all like, okay, then what do you have to say instead of focusing on what the rest of the tribe has been saying? Yeah, well, certainly. Yeah, that's that's probably the case for a lot of people. I and mean, there's probably, you can divine, define, <laughs> divide most of the global population into people that on this topic would tend to strongly believe whatever the U.S. says and then people who would just automatically discount whatever the U.S. says. And it's probably right. a larger group on the left than the right, but it's probably the balances are shifting all the time but but first it's not really a bad thing that humans use what, what we call proxies for reasoning um you you mentioned that there are people who are like will only believe what kim kardashian happens to say about ufos that person isn't the problem isn't that they're using a proxy and other person to like do their reasoning for them it's just that they've chosen the wrong one right we can't all go out and run all the experiments for ourselves so we look for experts people who we think have actually done the real work um, and use them as proxies. Like there are all sorts of scientific things that I just cannot go out and myself validate, but the people at CERN, what they happen to think about it are pretty good proxies for me. So I'll just, whatever they say, I'm, you know, on board with it to a, to a certain extent. Uh, the problem is for, one of the problems for UAP studies is that we don't even know who the right proxies are. Like who are the actual experts and who are the people who have the incentives to tell us the truth? Like this is all, more like strategy or like war strategy stuff that I'm doing here. Um, and, and maybe one of my main worries is that people who are making decisions at like a policy level or strategic level just aren't as good at strat strategically thinking as they need to be about this because there's, um, I think that I could almost literally prove that there are certain positions we should take regarding certain UAP questions that, Almost nobody seems to take, but I, I think that we could <laughs> we could definitively prove it. So, um, yeah, it's back to your your question is that, uh, yeah, there are people who are looking for these proxies to them, but the question, the public question, needs to be who are the right people to listen to, mm -hmm. and why. And th that's a good public discussion. I don't think we need philosophers to come out and say here's who you should listen to. I think that these conclusions are something that we can draw just by reasoning together. But we're probably not going to land on certain people who are like big names. Like um, Joe Rogan has a pretty extraordinary influence over Great the platform. UAP community. It seems. Yeah. Um, but I don't. I don't know why anybody should give a damn what that dude thinks. I mean, he's probably a cool guy, but not as far as proxies for belief. 
No. Now, what if this was not sort of the revelation of disclosure from politicians? What if this was like legitimately another Phoenix Lights happened? Or in this case, thousands of people saw the craft, broad daylight, saw the entities. Maybe they had a telepathic communication. Do you think there would be as many fingers off of each? Or would they, there would still be polarity maybe, but just it'd be black and white it wouldn't be no, it would it would fragment and fracture in ways that would be so disappointing to us because we think when we think about those scenarios we think well it's just right out in the in the public right how could that what's right. there to interpret or disagree on look back at the um the fatima uh, miracle yeah. uh, i'm not a catholic i'm not even particularly religious i used to be but like seven hundred thousand people saw essentially the same impossible thing all together and as far as I can tell, nobody even knows what the event was unless they're like really devout Catholics. This is this kind of goes back to the scientific anomaly thing, because one of the things that is pretty clear for looking at the history of science and the history of like scientific thinking is that when something happens that just radically does not fit with our current theoretical framework, we just ignore it. Mm. Like, for, like for real, it's not even not even a criticism it's just like the process we just put that aside and say we don't know what the hell to do with that we're not even going to try to explain it we're just not going to keep it on the table that happens the history of science is that process going until the pile of shit off the table becomes so big that it starts to like avalanche onto the table at which point our scientific current scientific theories start to crumble and we go into a period called crisis science which we may be headed for right now uap might have something to do with it but there are other scientific theories that seem to be like not pulling their weight so well dark matter dark energy things like that are, are theories that are kind of starting to get a big pile of stuff in the corner that's kind of getting hard to ignore but let's let's go back to your your example let's say just a bunch of ufos land on the white house and aliens come. This, is, this is the question i asked mick west i was like what would the scenario be that would convince you there's a there there and he was, I was really surprised at this. He said, oh, well, just think about the classic, like if the UFOs land on the White House, aliens come out, announce that they're from, you know, Jupiter, whatever it is. Um, and there are lots of press there and cameras see it. I, I was surprised at that because he's not saying if I were there, he's saying that if, if he saw this on television, it would happen. But think about how easy it is to fake television broadcasts or... I mean, especially if you're something like the U.S. government. I mean, it would be a trivial matter creating a movie scene like this. You could just do it in CG or something, right? So what portion of the public would believe this is a real thing? And then what portion of the public would say, this is the U.S. doing something absurd to try to control its population. There's no way to verify it unless you happen to be right in front of the White House at that very time. All the people who were there have probably been paid off their actors or whatever. And that the question is, which is a more plausible scenario? that the government is doing something absurd, like aggressively controlling like this, or that there are like aliens that have landed on the White House. Like, I, I don't even know how I would subjectively weigh the probability of either of those things. I would just be in a state of total confusion. Um, and then I would think, oh, that's what Russia wants, is just constant public confusion. Maybe they're involved in this. I think that's the, the way that it would just start rolling in all these different directions. What would you think? I mean, like, if you saw the broadcast, for that and saw it on a news station would you be like there it is or would you have certain um skepticism inside you depends on the belief in the media right how 
how willing are you to accept what the media is uh, is putting out there? And, and, you know, I think that's a big thing, too. Like we've lost faith in media. Media has also done a good job aligning with political parties. So, you know, people that are typically one party will have their preferred news station, which is in stark contrast to the other party's news station. So I suppose you would accept it or not based on how much trust you have in the government, the media, the person delivering it. If it came from Tucker Carlson or, you know, um, Anderson Cooper, if you hate those characters, you're going to hate the message they're spewing. So it's it. I think it's literally impossible to have disclosure for everybody, myself personally. There will always be a faction, even like in the world of trolls on the Internet. A lot of these people are just looking for attention. They even know half the stuff they're writing is ridiculous, but it's the response they're looking for. It's almost sad in a way, right? Like they just want validation that they have a voice. So I don't ever think there will be disclosure 100% unless it was a telepathic communication to everybody. But then maybe people would say that's mind control. It's coming from Antarctica. The government's doing it. MK Ultra never ended. That kind of thing, right? I don't think it ever ends. I'm going crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's only one. I think there's only one person in the world that can actually bring disclosure and everybody would believe it. And that's Ryan Reynolds. Because <laughs> everybody loves that guy. It's impossible. If he says it's true, the whole world will believe it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. If we could get Ryan Reynolds and Tom Hanks and like who is the rock, the rock, the rock yeah. all yeah. together in a room with like a fireplace behind them. And they have sweaters on this thing. We just want to tell you, this is real. And I think that might be the best PR strategy, but. That's going to be a UAP studies exclusive, I think. You know what I mean? We'll we'll, we'll reach out I to think, Ryan. I think Buddha did this hundreds and hundreds of years ago, right? Because the the Buddhist culture believes that we have space brothers. There are We are just one reality, and there are many, right? So I don't think it's a new concept. I think this, and we've interviewed people, ancient historians and things like that, and you talk about all these ancient ruins, but I think the belief that we are not alone is nothing new. I think we've always thought that. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, the, it seems... So that's a that's a struggle for me as a just a person who's concerned with reasoning through all my beliefs is that I I have this ineliminable tendency to believe in a god or some other force of life that's permeating the universe. I just find it so immediately implausible that there's not some other out there, and I don't know why I have that belief, and I don't know how much cross to put in it or how much to let it sort of control the reins of my other reasoning processes but i find it within myself and maybe it's something that just has to do with our innate biology but it's probably good for us i mean to just believe that you're the only one would probably create some negative incentives you know not to explore or something I think it comes down to your experiences too, right? If you were indoctrinated a certain way and then you matured and realized that life is nothing at all like that, you're going to start to question. But if you're told to put your faith, pray when, you know, in times of despair, and if you came out on the other end better off, you've kind of got validation that, hey, it worked. There is a God, right? So yeah. I myself am a spiritual person. I do believe the fact that we are created means something or, you know, some force created us. The painting is proof of a painter. Beyond that, I have no idea. And I was raised in a Catholic household. I didn't have a bad experience. There was no creepy priests or anything like that. <laughs> but, you know, it was a good it was a good way to explain big concepts that are hard for a young person to observe. Now, I'm not saying that doctrine is to the letter of the word. I mean, these books were written hundreds of years after the people in them died. It's been controlled by heads of state and religion. 
to swing the narrative the way they want versus the other. So there's been a lot of bad things done. But do you blame, quote unquote, God and religion or do you blame the man-made politics that came out of that? Like, are you casting a stone at the wrong entity for causing that problem? And that's that's everyone's going to have a different opinion on that. We we struggle with that ourselves. And there's no right or wrong answer. It's whatever you can make sense of in your head. It's how you extrapolate that. You know, I was going to say I heard a quote once in a movie and um, it was religion is flawed because man is flawed. Right. Right. It's uh, and, and it's an idealism. And actually, Mike, that takes me to my second question here or whatever, third question. I don't know where I'm at. My questions here. But uh, so homo sapien idealisms versus universal reality. Right. We have to reconcile the two. But we have a hard time doing that. You were mentioning Mick West was like, hey, if they land on the White House lawn, that would solid. So that's a homo sapien idealism. This is what would be the best ideal situation for me. Mm -hmm. But the universe and reality doesn't work on our idealisms. It has its own laws and rules. And that's how we're going to find out when it comes down to the subject of not only studying this phenomenon, accepting the phenomenon, as a person, how can I break down my idealisms versus the reality of what I'm going to discover as we progress? How can I manage that? Do you have any tips and advice on that? Definitely. I mean, what you're asking is just how do I go about reasoning about an, a topic that's important to me without screwing it up by not by unknowingly injecting my own biases and preconceptions in ways that I don't realize. First of all, it's impossible to get out of the ideology that you have, right? The second you think you've taken your glasses off is when you just have the pair of glasses on that you don't even know exists, but they're right. glasses, right? We can't think without some sort of construct or some set of, of concepts and, and beliefs that help us filter reality. If you tried to think that way, all that you could do is sit down and, and say, okay, I don't, I don't know if there's a, a lamp here. I just see some a, a black line and then another black line and then some white. And then, you know, that's about all you could do, right? You couldn't actually reason about what reality outside yourself is. You just reason about your own perceptions. But we can, let's not get stuck in that bubble, right? Let's just assume <laughs> there's a reality out here. Everybody seems to be getting along fine with that assumption. So um, the question about how to, to reason and sort of notice your own biases First, this is the question of self-knowledge, right? I mean, this may sound kind of hippy-dippy, but like a lot of bad reasoners are bad reasoners because they don't really know themselves and what their own intellectual tendencies are, right? I know I tend to reason, uh, certain lines of reasoning feel more natural to me than others. And that's not because they are more natural. It's because I have a certain intellectual history, right? Lines of reasoning that involve, you know, deep meaning and intentionality make a lot of sense to me like why the universe is the way it is to reason about that and say well it has some end that it's coming towards there's some goal here rather than to say oh it's just all a blind set of processes that produces this thing that feels better to me but then i have to remember what feels good to me is just irrelevant right i mean i, I register the feeling but i have to say let's go down both of these routes as far as we can as fairly as we can and see where they go and then you know continue doing it and what you'll find is that eventually you hit a, an oasis over here that makes you go oh that feels really good too and maybe you'll switch and you, and you do switch like if you've not changed your mind 
throughout your life about a really important issue, that's uh, the number one indicator that you've been reasoning just along the lines that are most comfortable and natural for you mm. rather than reasoning sort of outside your comfort zone and trying to follow out and hear out conclusions and arguments that you don't readily accept. Like, that's why I wanted to talk to Mick West because he believes he's a, is an intelligent guy who believes something that I don't believe at all. And those are the people I need to be exposed to because they're the ones who can help me see outside my bubble. So the first rule is know which lines of reasoning, which biases and tendencies you have as a thinker, right? You are a thinker. It's not, it's not arrogant to think of yourself that way, right? That's, that's kind of our, our evolutionary trick. Like alligators are really good at lowering their, their uh, sort of metabolic rate and waiting really long. That's their evolutionary trick. Our evolutionary trick is thinking and, and communicating those thoughts, right? Um, so know your own tendencies. The second is seek out really uncomfortable intellectual engagements. Uh, not just uncomfortable, but uncomfortable because you're engaging with a person who is good at thinking and who has reached wildly different conclusions that you have. And just hear him out. I mean, my entire conversation with Mick West was brilliant. I, I love it. He's, he's smart and kind and, and polite and thoughtful and said things I didn't expect. And that uh, that took me into a new place. I'm not sure I, I totally believe it. But now I'm, I'm thinking about, well, what do I need to do to satisfy um this sort of discomfort that I'm of arisen at because it does make me uncomfortable to hear somebody who says, I think you're just wrong, just deeply, deeply wrong about this. Uh, and here's why. And now I kind of want to reconcile that. I've got new questions that I can kind of follow out. So it's discomfort, but I think about um, sort of doing philosophy as like the intellectual version of roller coaster riding. Right. Uh, it is a kind of discomfort that you learn to find pleasure in. I can't ride roller coasters like, some innate part, some part of my animal brain flips the fuck out. Like I'm crying <laughs> at the end, literally at the end Same. of the world. I can't do them either. I almost jumped off that, uh, you know, the pirate ship, the one that goes like super yes. high. They made Ooh. me sit at the end where supposedly you get the most pleasure. I've never been on a ride before. I never contemplating never from the start because the machinery is huge. I was literally thinking about jumping off of it. I was so terrified. Yeah. Uh, so I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Right. But some people have found a way to find that pleasurable. I haven't, I don't really see what the advantage of finding that pleasurable is. I'm not going to be on those things very often. They actually are kind of dangerous, but there's a lot of advantages of being able to find intellectual exercises that are uncomfortable, pleasurable, finding pleasure in that discomfort. So philosophy is being a good philosopher, just a good thinker is about sort of fetishizing and enjoying the discomfort of wandering into places that feel so alien to you and figuring out how they think and experimenting and thinking that way. I think that's the advice. That I think we've lost the art of healthy debate. And you see that. I mean, UFO Twitter is just a cesspool of assholes just trying to literally ruin other people's day, not contributing anything, not saying, hey, I see your point. I don't agree with it. And here's my points and here's why. You know, I think of like old school collegiate level debate class. You get a couple people on each side, you top, bring up a big topic that's polarizing and each makes their own opinions. And at the end, everybody leaves as a friend, but you learn something or at least you learn that there is a faction of people who believe this. And these are the reasons they believe that. Maybe that helps you come to realize, why do I believe the crap I believe? Like, am I just as in, in their mind? I'm just as opposite of them as I think they are 
right now. Like we're both holding the same perspective on each other. So being able to have that sort of social interaction and not get so offended, you know, as soon as somebody makes a statement, it's not interesting. Why do you feel that way? It's you're a total idiot. If you believe oh, yeah. in Greer or like they use every tool they can to degrade the person rather than just try to hear them out. And, you know, there's a difference between a, a skeptic and a debunker. I will say that I won't offer comments on Mick West because I do think it's ignorant not to say maybe or there's a chance. You know what I mean? Yeah. We talked with Jacques Vallée, probably the most reputable and honest, humble guy in this field. And I said, hey, Jacques, you know, like you've done this for so many years. What do you want to tell our audience? And he says, suspend judgment. So even he changed his mind a dozen times. So for anybody to say no way on either side, like no way that they're real or no way that they're not real, that's dangerous. You cannot say, you know, conclusively one way or the other. Stephen Greer recently had a press conference and he said all non-human intelligence is friendly, all of them. You can't say that. How do you know that? You know, like even if you have some information that we've only been interacting with friendly ones, how do you know there are not so friendly ones somewhere else in the universe? So anytime you draw a conclusive point, that's a problem. So I stating like absolutes. Keep, yeah. Stating yeah, absolutes. Keep, keep the Jacques Vallée mentality. Keep your mind open. You don't know. We've changed our mind just in the course of doing this show. We used to yeah. be nuts and bolts. Then we start looking at consciousness and all the brilliant work that's being done there. Cryptids, and, then, yeah. and then it gets weird, right? You can get into the world of cryptids and poltergeist yeah. and hitchhiker effects. And like some orbs are good. Some orbs are bad. You get into the world of woo real fast, but, but it all starts with the ability to gain, like you said, gain a little bit of pleasure and thinking about the difficult things and, you know, doing uh, meditation is like that. It's hard if you're yeah. not trained and it doesn't feel good and you feel like you did it and you got nothing from it. But it gets to a point where you learn to recognize when you're in it and then you glean the pleasure out of the experience. Right. So using the tool properly, I think, is very important and knowing how to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. I like the common this the the connection between meditation and philosophy, because there is a a strong connection between the sort of like discomfort and work you have to put into it because right. it feels so unnatural and difficult when you're doing it, almost wrong like to just sit and do right. nothing yeah how do you know? sit and turn your brain off as yeah. you're trying to turn your brain off you're thinking about turning your brain off it, it's the idea of you know settle the mind it's a very difficult thing to do and some people myself included were thinking 10 steps ahead all the time we're 100 miles an hour standing still to quiet that energy is uh is a difficult thing and it's definitely uh a task but uh, before we get to your mind map i wanted to ask you about consciousness do you because we're you know we realize consciousness is non-local do you think that if we could all access consciousness equally and receive the answer quote unquote disclosure through that level would that be a way of sort of uniting the masses because it's not coming from a particular messenger or faction or political party or religious party it would literally be that person self-realizing you know, existential truths. Do you think that that would potentially, you know, work better? So the scenario you're contemplating is that sort of somehow everybody gets the same telepathic message in their head. They sort of hear an interior. Yeah, voice. we all get really good at meditating and access consciousness level. And then in that realm, we petition the question of, are we alone in the universe? And we get an answer. 
Do you think I that think would be enough to, because it's on a conscious level, would that penetrate the biases and all the junk? Like people go and have a DMT experience. Their life is forever changed. They mm -hmm. say, you know what I mean? They lose a lot of their old baggage. They deal with old traumas, whatever their purpose for doing the, the therapy. It seems to work somehow. And, you know, a lot of people are doing the studies of what are psychedelics and consciousness? It's, you know, what are they related to? So do you think if they got the message through that level above the biases and all the, the garbage and data playing, would that ring more true? It would certainly convince a lot more people, but there would always be, I'm thinking now of like the Sam Harris faction, right? Sam Harris being the sort of neuroscientist who has some philosophical experience, but he wanders pretty deep into the philosophy world. Um, and he is like, if not a total materialist about consciousness, at least effectively seems to think that way about how consciousness works. It's, it's brain states. They scale up somehow into conscious states. And I think he would say the same thing in that scenario that he says about like near-death experiences. But there's just some clear as yet undiscovered but but clear uh explanation for why people who got really good at meditating have all of a sudden started adopting this sort of view in the same way that people who like get really close to brain death tend to have these really bizarre experiences that have something in common right you know your yeah. brain floods with dmt and whatever you see a light with whatever the explanation is um i think that people would who are, who are like hardcore brain materialists would have to to adopt that view in order to stay consistent with their own worldview. So, but most people, I think, who had that experience would would go with it if it were, especially if it were a good experience. If it felt good, I think you'd have a really great chance of persuading a lot of people. But then they wouldn't be able to persuade anybody who didn't already believe right. it. That's right. Everybody has to have the experience or you have that same polarity. The haves and the have-nots. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure if you ever get a full have, you know, like like full conviction. Um, and maybe that's not the point. But what I worry about is the 10, 20, 30, 50% of the people who disagree having like real violent or or antagonistic attitudes towards the other people if they think they're being controlled or if they think it's going to encroach on their freedom i mean just look at what happens if you try to pass a law that like limits the amount of bullets you can carry in america it's like there's a certain small faction of people who act as if you told them they're like we're going to execute your fucking children yeah like, the those people can look even though there's a small number can have a really outsized effect on society and that's that phenomenon isn't going away and I think it would crop up just the same in, in any of these scenarios we imagine. So I, I really hope that government, if there's anybody in the government who's listening to this. Really there are many. There are many. About, really hope that you're thinking about the sort of game theoretic ways of scratching these scenarios out and, and looking at what the best strategy is. Because I don't see a lot of good strategic work going on in the public. And maybe that's because it's all going on private. But... I'm I'm somewhat skeptical. Nice. And, and what's the people's right to know if it is going on? Do we not have a say? Like who speaks on behalf of humanity? Yeah, good point. You know? Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm thinking about writing an article about this just just for 
<laughs> it would be suicide probably like the amount of weird people i got i published a debrief article and i i got so many people writing me accusing me of being like a cia plant or something and so this article what i'm thinking about contemplating is writing an article making the case that the government shouldn't tell us anything that they know that it would just be too dangerous there would be no uh no sound benefits for the government there'd be no positive incentives for them to tell the public and there'd be lots and lots of negative incentives and, and lots of unknowns and you just could not rationally make the the decision to disclose information if you were if you're doing it from a governmental standpoint i don't know if i actually believe that but it's an argument that needs to be considered which is kind of a philosopher way of thinking about it like we need to flesh the arguments out and look at them before we know if they're any good not just make the arguments that intuitively appeal to us but i i imagine most people who read that would just think i'm being paid by the government yeah well i we mentioned it before whenever there's a, a whistleblower or somebody who can come along and contribute to this there's it's like duck hunt you know what i mean like they're just people awaiting yeah. it with shotguns yeah. i mean you take flight they try to shoot you down and that's one of the biggest problems that we have because it's not only how complex this issue is on all aspects of our social science and political uh, aspects but it's now also fighting the people see there's progressive people neutral people and regressive people hmm. right the neutral people are the worst because they don't pick a side and they don't help progress e either or the regressive people like things the way they are right now they don't want to change they don't want to think uh, there was a quote i recently saw and you probably know who this philosopher is but he said only two percent of people think three percent people think they think and the rest of the 95 percent would rather do anything else but think right and i thought that was great because i'm like that's exactly what it feels like on an average day um mike can you show us your brain chart the 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 brain map that you oh, sure. uh, that you put up there that was pretty cool so the other thing that i made was are you seeing that now yep no we cool. still see the disclosure one uh oh let's see screen i'm sharing well the thing that i made is um let's try it again the other thing that i made had to do with um this you can probably see that now, right? Yeah, zoom it in a little bit. It's hard to oh, see. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll get there. But just so you can see it all at the moment, yeah. we'll zoom in in a second. But um, the way I made this, the reason I made this is because I hear people talk about the government, like almost in sort of capital letters, as if there's just like one monolithic thing out yeah. there that is thinking. And people say the government is hiding something from us. And I did some work as a PhD student on uh, government surveillance technologies, which got me, um, I got invited to Germany to talk about it. This was around the time the Edward Snowden stuff was going on. And, you know, of course, just pure chance, I got um, checked for every possible, like, selective random check that I could and, and asked lots of questions because I was going to go talk about government surveillance in Germany. But um, the, the point that I was making that talk at uh, Darmstadt was that uh, the government, there's no single government. There's just no such thing. There's all these fragmented offices and each of the fragmented offices have their own sets of like fidelities, loyalties and, and animosities and incentives for what information they do and don't share, right? So if you throw, uh, if you make a big sort of flow chart of the government and other governments, um, which is what we have here, and this is 
of course not complete. This is just like a very surfacey sketched out, like um, half-assed attempt at kind of depicting some of this. If you just sketch out the government, some government offices and their relations and inside and outside the government, you end up with this like Dr. Seuss, Rube Goldberg machine. And then you ask, okay, let's see some, some information gets thrown in there. Let's say uh, a, a UFO falls out of the sky and crashes into a farmer's field and we retrieve it. And it's got some tech on it that we don't understand. Uh, if that lands in any particular place, where does it go? What it doesn't do is it doesn't just proliferate throughout the government and then the government makes a decision about it, right? So I, I sort of tried to color code these things where the arrows between one office and, and another, um, the lighter the arrows, the more freely information flows, the darker the arrows, the more selectively information flows and it doesn't flow back as easily. So if you've got a red arrow information that flows that way does not come back upstream right mm-hmm. it ends there right so um so let's say you know the what are the chances that if the department of homeland security um finds this this crashed thing in a field what are the chances that the president even knows about it i think they're pretty low because the department of homeland security are a bunch of career people who are going to be there throughout multiple presidencies Right. And the president's charge is not to deal with crashed UFOs. I mean, it's not really their job description. Um, and there's lots of reasons not to tell them because you don't want every four years to tell some new dude who's going to go out there and you don't know how to control. You can't control what they say. So it's probably best for it to stay there. Um, so what gets communicated back to the president is often this very selective uh, channel that's that's constructed for the, the benefit of the people over here, not for the president, um, and through oversight committees that are doing the same thing, telling as little as they can to the president. Um, but the point it of really this does is not-, not have a need to know because these oversight committees, they're like the old uh, the dispatcher, you know, when you call the operator and they'd have to plug the wires in. It's essentially everything has a pre-planned route of where this info goes. And then some committees making a decision where it goes from there. They are not yes. allowed to commute. And that's this is a, a perfect illustration of how compartmentalized government, intelligence, military, how they really are. They are literally operating. And some of them don't have, you know, any, uh, you know, any reason to be loyal to one or the other. They have their own oh. oversight and their own objective. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we consider the military branches over here. Each of these military branches do communicate with each other, but they communicate on the basis of what's in their own best interest to right. communicate to the other group. And they're actually competitors when it comes to like um, budgetary financing and stuff. They want to have proprietary knowledge to keep it from others. So if there are crashed objects that the Army has and some that the Navy has and some that the Air Force has, I would be surprised if they're just freely communicating with each other about it. I imagine that they are playing dumb or not even have to play dumb because the information officers that coordinate communications between them aren't the people who get to be in the know which is why when you um like when david grush's uh all of his uh statements got approved by the pentagon it's some people said well well it must not be true if the pentagon approved it uh they don't even contemplate the possibility that the people in the public information office in the FOIA request office don't know everything Right. They have to ask somebody who knows something, and that person decides, do we allow this to go forward and allow people to say, oh, it must not be true if they allowed it to go forward, or do we not allow it to go forward and breed suspicion 
that there's a there there. And strategically, it's best for them to uh, to do the first thing, to just let it go forward, right? So all you really know when you see an outcome is what sort of strategic calculations the people made on the back end. You don't really know anything about the truth. And then when you go into international um, uh, situations, the network of relationships between given countries is totally fraught. I mean, it's just spaghetti, right? It's just multicolored. It's a mess. This is why the, the, the UN doesn't work. Because everybody's in bed with somebody else and no policies get approved because it's a mess. Like you said, it's like a spaghetti plate, right? It's just everybody's all over the place. Well, it does. It works in one way. I mean, one of the one of the uh, the initial purposes was to make it so that nobody could go to war with anybody else without just fucking it all up. And that's done yeah. a fairly good job, right? You, right. China goes to war with America. They're going to starve because we give them their soy and their pork and we get their steel or whatever it is. Um, so we really can't go to war with each other very easily. That worked. Everything else became so administratively convoluted that it's just impossible to navigate. But that's maybe a small price to pay for averting nuclear war. And, you know, then we come out over here and we get like journalistic organizations and who they communicate with. Um, and you get Tucker Carlson. So let's, let's just fo focus on Tucker Carlson or Maggie Haberman from the New York Times, right? Two sort of antitheses. Where are they in this? chain of information sharing there they've gone to a place where, where it's gray where it's like we don't even know what the rules for communicating information are but almost all the information flowing into them has been so selective and filtered that you can be fairly sure apart from whistleblowers that they're only getting the information that is safe for the people communicating it to them it's very unlikely that tucker carlson or uh, donald trump or maggie haberman at least donald trump in his current incarnation um, are going to know any of the really centrally interesting facts. And that may be best because it, there's lots of situations you can contemplate where the government knows something that if everybody knew, it would endanger the whole world, right? If if the government said, the, the government being United States government or some branch of it, said we have crashed saucers, we figured out how to fly them at, you know, Mach 5, that, that would be really, really bad because it would create huge incentives for people who feel threatened by America to try to obtain that technology. Because what you have there, and I haven't heard anybody talk about this, but it's, it's certainly worrisome. If you have a, a machine, a big metal machine that can fly at Mach 5, you've got essentially an indestructible, undefeatable weapon. I mean, none of our missile systems uh, defenses will work against it because it can just stop in the midair. That's not how missile, sense, uh, missile defense systems are, are engineered to, to deal with, right? They deal with things that have to follow ballistic curves and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, all you'd need is one of these machines. You could slam it to a nuclear power plant at Mach 5, and then something really bad would happen, right? That's a catastrophic sort of uh, endgame machine, and it would be best if we didn't just let everybody know about it. You know what, Mike? It's uh, We're going to have to wrap it up soon because... Um... Yeah. We're trying yeah. to keep it within an hour, an hour and 15. Yeah. But I really would like to do a part two with you because I think there's so much material here that it's impossible for us to cover it in an hour's time. Uh, and, and I'm fascinated by it. And, you know, when it comes down to disclosure, there's ours, which I think will be a drip disclosure. There'll be a lot of things we're going to have to sit through to make, okay, what's solid, what's bullshit, right? But that's going to come from the general population and scientists get involved in it. I'm not holding my breath that anything from the government or the defense department is ever going to come out. 
But that's one aspect of disclosure. The other aspect of disclosure is their disclosure. An event that's going to happen, that's going to shake the world, it's going to be filmed by multiple people, multiple angles, and it's going to be irrefutable, right? In the past, the government's always kept quiet, like the Phoenix Lights um, in 97. The government just said to the governor, make it go away. So the governor came out and made a big joke about it, but literally yeah. he saw it too. Everybody saw it. And when that happens again, because it's not a one-off, uh, this time it's it's going to be there. Like people are going to know that whatever forces at play are, you know, keeping this secret from us, calling us crazy for things that we're witnessing or experiencing. Meanwhile, fooling uh, or knowing fully exactly what's going on and that we're right. But let's pretend it's like basically uh, the equivalent of, uh, you know, I know this is going to sound bad, but, you know, a child telling you that somebody, an adult is hurting them and you go, no, they're not, honey. No, they're not. And you do that throughout their entire life. You make them feel crazy like it's not true. But it turned out that you had full knowledge of it. Right. Uh, this is the equivalent of that. As far as I'm concerned, as an insult to being a 42 year old man that lives in this reality and having something of nature being denied to me, or the reality of, of nature is being denied to me. I'm, I'm, I'm said, no, you, you stay in a fishbowl and we'll keep you there. And that's the problem that I have with disclosure because there is accountability. And I think that they're trying to, the longer they hold off disclosure, the more consequences there's going to be. So they need to come out at some point to mitigate the amount of damages that's going to be caused. So this is very interesting. And like I said, just being able to go there with you and to look at these different angles and complications, situations that might arise, this definitely deserves a part two. Louis, do you have any final uh, questions for Mike? Yeah, today? Michael, if people want to learn more about you or follow your work, where can they uh, where can they follow you? Sure. You can follow me on Twitter at uh, Michael Glosson. That's just my full name. Uh, you can go to my link tree, which I think is just slash michael glosson also or if you want to reach out to me i respond to every even just minimally sane email i get as long as it's not absolutely belligerent i I respond to every email i I want to hear from you if you have experiences you want to talk about or if you have reading recommendations for me or you just want to say hi or if you're in the government and you want to talk about strategy stuff i've got a few conversations going on there and uh, everybody should know that because I'm at least framing what I'm doing in terms of, of my work as an academic, I'm responsible for confidentiality standards that are about the same as like a journalist would be, right? So if you reach out to me and you want to talk to me and you just say, this, I'd like for this to be totally confidential, I am bound to keep that and I promise I will. Uh, so yeah, anybody who's interested, let's be friends and let's let's talk. I am also, since we're doing a part two, um, next time I'm going to give you guys uh, a few resources that you can uh, sort of make for free to people. One being this and the flowchart or the uh, the mind map thing. And the other being a reading list I'm putting together uh, for people who are interested in the topic and who might want some reading that's relevant and helpful, but not necessarily standard UFO literature. There's a lot of philosophy and even fiction that I think is really just essential for thinking well about this. So I'll, I'll have that for you guys to dispense next time. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. We'll be happy to do that. And same goes for us. We always welcome uh, comments and emails and we do keep everything confidential. We've had people send us 
like legitimate video and asked us not to share it. We've had people send us video and don't know where to send it. We send it off to state director of MUFON and all of a sudden they're getting some action and trying to find answers that they're looking for. So same goes with us. Confidentiality is number one. We don't reveal sources and things like that. But uh, yeah, we'd love to have you back again, Michael. And uh, for our audience, let us know what you thought of today's show. Uh, If this is your cup of tea, give us a thumbs up. And if you haven't already subscribed, please go ahead and do that. And uh, we'll call it a day with our new friend, Michael Gloss, and look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, yeah, it was a great were... chat. It's uh, intellectually stimulating. And that's what we're trying to do with this show is just give people new ways of thinking about things. You're going to have to draw your own conclusion, but just keep an open mind and uh, keep your eyes to the sky. Absolutely. Have a good one, guys. Awesome, Mike. Thank you.